this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on this week's Relax Back UK show. This week, I look at a couple of topics that COVID has affected and potentially affected them a great deal. The first is mental health and in particular how employ- employers can help staff. I mean, one of the biggest barriers that people experience is, is just mustering you know, the, the courage to seek help for these conditions. So what we do is when, when you screen positive for one of these, one of our therapists reaches out to you and makes that conversation, that initial conversation, that ice-breaking moment that is quite difficult, much okay. easier for you. Dr. Andres Fonseco, CEO of Thrive, explains how taking this stuff digital can be very effective. Then many people are back shopping, but are all our shopping habits the same? Should our shopping habits be the same should we think about changing them so effectively when you're in a a retail premises or a shop and you're taken away from the busy shop floor in order to have a more personal consultation generally in close proximity with the worker providing that service um, and often in quite a small space Um, so for example within pharmacy having your eyes checked by an optician um, hair and beauty therapy treatments and, and things along those lines so So that was the scope of our study, really, to look at people's use of face coverings um, and the factors that affect that behaviour in in that quite specific retail context. Becca Cannon is the the principal scientist of human factors at the Institute of Occupational Medicine, and she describes the research they've done on this. So please do join us for a great show. Thank you. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. So my first guest is Dr. Andres Fonseco. He's CEO of Thrive, the mental health app. And my first question to him really was, what is Thrive and what do you do? Yeah, so we, we, um, we are a, a digital mental health service. Um, we basically have um, an app that employees can access on their phones. And that does uh, two main things. So it screens for the presence of common mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. And if um, the person that is using it happens to screen positive for one of these, or, or you know, it cannot, it doesn't necessarily need to be one of those. It could be just stress or symptoms of burnout. 
Uh, then it, it sort of uh, produces a series of recommendations for them to follow and to sort of recover from these conditions. We also have a, a therapy service, which is integrated with the platform. So when, I mean, one of the biggest barriers that people experience is, is just mustering you know, the, the courage to seek help for these conditions. So what we do is when, when you screen positive for one of these, one of our therapists reaches out to you and makes that conversation, that initial conversation, that ice-breaking moment that is quite difficult, much okay. easier for you. So they reach out to so, you and they engage you. So it's me men mental health gone digital. Yes, Very yes good. exactly, yes. Um, so let, 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 let's move on. COVID and lockdown and all that sort of thing, yeah. it really changed, well, it changed our lives. It made a lot of people ill. You know, let's face it, quite a, lots of people died. Yes. But it changed a lot of our work habits. Um, so did the nation's mental health change during lockdown as a result of these, these changes? Uh, it, it, it did it did quite a lot. I mean, it, I think it resulted in greater isolation in general. A lot of people struggled. Uh, there were um, particular industries that were hit much harder than others. There was a lot of people that had a lot of uh, financial uh, instability, and it was quite hard to predict the future. All of those things increase your risk of having a, a mental health condition. And also, for example, if you look at key workers, uh, we saw a great difference in the, I mean, a, a great increase in the in the level of people that were uh, screening positive for burnout. So if you look at key workers uh, versus non-key workers, I mean, again, non-key workers was quite high, it was about 38%, what we saw during, you know, 2020 and 2021. But in key workers, it was 50% of, of, of key workers were, uh, noticeable, having noticeable signs of, of burnout. Okay, so th so this is a lot more serious than just people having more time on their hands to think. Hang on a moment, I'm not sure I'm as happy with my life as I could be. Do you know? Do you know, do you know what I mean? Or is that a bit of a facetious comment? No, I mean it, it, it's a lot more serious than that. And and I mean, what one of the one of the problems, the perennial problems that that we tend to have is that. People think think about this thing, think that maybe we're talking more about it and, and a lot of people are sort of jumping on the bandwagon. But in reality, if you look at the figures, the, the, the problem is much greater than it was. There's also more awareness of people are seeking help, which is, which is a good thing. But again, still, the large majority of people that experience significant mental health problems are, are not able um, to come forward and, and, and seek help. Uh, and they find it difficult for different reasons. So... Um, one of the things is that they, they might feel that they are that they could be dismissed, that people might think, oh, you know, it's all in their heads, so therefore it's not real, so therefore, uh, mm -hmm. you know, why am I seeking help? So, so, so there's a barrier there immediately. There's a little bit of stigma. You know, if, if I admit to others that I'm really, really struggling, what are they going to think of me? Is that going to affect my, my work, for example? So there's another barrier there. And, and there's a there's a big barrier that comes from the from the symptoms of the conditions themselves. So if you if you're very anxious, you're going to be very worried about what people think, and that taking that first step might be really really difficult because you're really not confident, and you might expect horrendous consequences for yourself uh, when you're in that. I guess this space. creates a bit of a vicious circle, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And the other one is if you if you're quite low in your mood, you're going to sort of um, have very low self-esteem. And actually think that what you are going through is not worth talking to others about. They won't care or, you know, that you should put up with it and that you shouldn't yeah. trouble others. Yeah. So, so Andres, as things have, I was going to say get back to normal, but there's this phrase, the new normal, you know, whatever that is. As, as things have changed, let's say, yes. and uh, 
COVID is, is still with us, but with us in a, a different form, I guess. Has our mental health sort of, has it, have we got out of the hole? Are, are people generally recovering and feeling um, better? Or is this kind of still with us? Has this COVID got a bit of a sting in the tail? I think, I mean, I think people are... People are thankful that things are opening up, and we see we see that uh, again. One of the one of the biggest things, and, and you know, mental health awareness week. Uh, the theme this year was was loneliness, or is loneliness, and and actually that isolation that we had to go through had a massive impact on on this factor, and we know that is a massive risk factor for the development of of mental health conditions. So. Thankfully, that is easing and people are able to sort of see one another and, and get support from one another because just having that social network around us is very, very protective. So those are good, positive things that that are, that are happened, you know, because we've we've come out of the, the lockdown and we're able to sort of see one another. However, I think the the some of the psychological impact still lingers and some of the some of the financial economic impact, you know, in, in, in people's in people's own finances, not 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 the, the economy at large, but the people's own finances still remains and, and you know i think if you walk down the down the high street uh, a little bit beyond the, what is the high street you'll see a lot of businesses are still closed you know because you know hospitality and and you know kind of like uh, uh, restaurants and that's those kinds of uh, businesses have been hit massively and so i think i think those those effects are still lingering um, i believe yes are, are there any effects that um businesses that employ people say you know an, an office-based business so yeah. some people are in it in the office some people are working at home or there's this hybrid mixture mm-hmm. um because there, there's this phrase which has been around for a while uh, presenteeism has yes. that sort of come to the fore with all this as it were yes actually i mean we, we know that um presenteeism as it were has has increased at the expense of what normally would be absenteeism before you know when you had to turn up at the office sometimes you actually you actually couldn't so in in, in mental health uh, because again because you 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 can probably get yourself to work you're probably not able to function well at work and you're probably overwhelmed and the symptoms are uh, uh, so intense that you're having difficulty concentrating and and you're observed by this pessimism, not really having any faith in in what you're doing, what you're capable of. So so it is it is quite a difficult situation. But you can probably get yourself physically to work um, again before before the pandemic because we all had to be in an office. Perhaps you would take if if you were really feeling very very unwell and very distressed, you would take the day off when you're working from home. You might not take the day off and you might sort of say that you are at work but you're actually not able to really work so again you would be you would be counted in this presenteeism um, figure i mean the thing to understand is even before the pandemic the costs associated with presenteeism were much greater than the costs associated with absenteeism for employers right and during the pandemic that's actually grown so more the the cost of presenteeism is even greater than it was do you have any figures yeah, it's how, about 50 how many million. people might be suffering from pres- this presenteeism and, and you know what it's costing us all? Yeah, so it's, it's the, the total cost of ill mental health to, to UK businesses is around £53 billion per year in the UK, which is a staggering 53 number. £53 billion? £53 billion is what is oh. calculated. And it's made up of, of three three things you know one is people leaving work because of their mental health you know they're just not able to you know it's completely um sort of removing themselves from the workforce so that's one chunk 
um, and, and costs having to replace them and having to attract uh, the right candidate and, and seeking employees that are missing, particularly key workers, as you might expect. Um, uh, absenteeism in itself, uh, which is probably the smallest chunk of the three, and then presenteeism, which is the biggest chunk of the three, is again people are able to get themselves to to work, uh, but are not able to are not able to perform it. And it would be about um, you know uh, something like. Uh, Fifty percent of of the total cost will be the presentism in the presentism box. If you, okay. if so that, so that's a lot of people and a lot of money. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's is 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 yeah, it's a staggering amount, really. Um, yeah, sixteen percent of you know the, the World Health Organization organization estimates that about sixteen percent of all days lost are lost to mental health. But if you actually look at a study done in the UK specifically by the Lloyd last year. That number is actually closer to twenty-eight percent of all days lost are lost to right. uh, due to ill mental health. Yes, I mean th this this must absolutely terrify large companies. You know, large companies that employ a lot of people. You know, the the, the biggest part of the company, the company is made up with the people they employ. You know, without exactly. the people, they're, they're nothing. They're just you know a bunch of tables and a few chairs. You know, they're, they're, they have zero value whatsoever. So they. You know, this must terrify a lot of companies. And in fact, I've got what well, this is a slightly different thread, but you, you can tell me if this if, if uh, this kind of thought is, is rubbish or not. I, I have this idea that during COVID, quite a lot of people kind of took stock of their life and mm. thought, hang on a moment. Uh, I, you know, I'm not necessarily I don't have mental health problems, but I'm not as happy as I could be. You know, I don't want to work this hard you know i don't want to sell my soul to the company I, I want to have a better life and i've got this feeling that this is terrifying companies because you know their best staff might turn around and say Look, sorry i don't want to work five days a week i'll see you three how's that mm. and um i've got a feeling that this is terrifying big companies have you come across this i mean that that may happen in in, in some cases and actually yes it, it could be terrifying for for companies, of course, but you know if, if if they are making that positive change to safeguard their mental health, well, that's very welcome. And and actually, those three days that they're able to do, those would probably be more productive for those companies if they are really prioritizing their the mental well-being, right? In reality, what we tend to see is is kind of the opposite. It's kind of people trying to stay at work, trying to sort of cope, and and really struggling and not being not being able to and. And it's about trying to support them the, the best you can and actually facilitating when they try to, to seek help. So the, the, the cost is interesting. If you calculate to a company, the cost per employee in terms of mental ill health, um, not per employee that, that is off sick, but per employee. So if, if you have, you know, 100 employees who can make the calculation in the UK is between about £3,000 per employee to about £1,200 per employee at the low end. So £1,200 is still a, you know, an enormous amount per year per employee that, yeah. you, that, you will that, that will cost you. And that's not those people you know, wanting to have a, a part-time job, which is, you know, again, great, and it could be that makes them more productive. No, it's about people not being able to, to sort of function and really struggling. Right. So, I mean, you kind of specialise in, in helping companies yes. help people, don't or help their staff. Help their staff. So, exactly. Uh, they do remain productive because I mean, there's something in it for the boss, you know, the employer. Yeah. <laughs> he wants his staff to be happy so they can be productive. So you you help all this happen. Um, Absolutely. So, and, and you've got a particular drive at the moment to try and address this. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, no, so so yes, that's actually what we do. Yes, we, we, we try and support companies to make it very easy for their employees to, to seek help. And as I was saying before, for different reasons, people are still finding it very hard. It's about about 60% of people will will not seek help or, you know, and, and a lot of people that when they seek help is very delayed by a year or more, by which time the problem might be more serious. So by making it easy, by putting it on, on people's hands in an app so they don't have to sort of tell their boss necessarily, they don't have to seek an appointment with a, with a GP and lose time of work, they don't have to do any of those things, just eliminating those barriers to seek help. So I, we've got this campaign called I Get Help. So it's actually to sort of promote the fact that, that you know, when you do need help, you should seek it. It's actually in your best interest, but also in the best interest of your family, people around you, to try and act on it as soon as possible, that you should take it seriously, that it is a health problem, and mm. that the, quickest you, the quicker you act, the better for you and for those around you. So yes, I mean, uh, the campaign is I Get Help. Um, and uh, you know, we have it up on our website. So, I mean, normally it's thrive.uk.com, but, you know, today you can visit igethelp.co.uk and you'll get some information about that as well. So, so is, the, is the idea that companies just sort of make this available so staff can then sort of make use of it if they wish? I mean, exactly. do, do you ever provide help for, you know, if, if a boss is worried about a member of staff or a member of his team, this is potentially quite a difficult, embarrassing discussion to have. But do you ever kind of give advice on how to first address the the, the issue or the situation? I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't know where to start. I, I guess no. I I would start by saying, "Hey, let's go for a beer," uh, which <laughs> might be completely wrong. I don't know. Over to you. What should not necessarily be no. worried. Actually, changing the environment to have that conversation might be a very good way to get somebody to open up. And the important thing is that you've noticed something and that you are concerned and you're trying to facilitate and approach each other like, like human beings and approach each other out of concern. So that first step that you mentioned, that that's not a bad thing to do. You know, if you, if, if you think that that's going to open the dialogue up, it's a perfectly reasonable thing, thing to do. Let's go outside of work where it's perhaps more private, other people don't, don't necessarily are privy to our conversation, and we can have an, um, a, a chat about things. No, of course we do. So we do two, two main things. We, we provide training for managers, also for staff, but training for managers to be able to have those conversations. And, you know, some of those tips that you might need when actually approaching a member of staff that you're a little bit worried, worried about. And we also make our own therapists available to managers so they can uh, talk to one of our therapists and say, I am worried about a member of staff. I don't really know how to approach it. I've noticed these things. What should I do next? So we do that for them to give them that little bit of confidence because, you know, people are worried about saying the wrong thing, as, you, as you're saying. Yeah. Um, and actually, th that isn't such a problem. If you, if you approach the other individual from a place of genuine concern, you're going to do well. So, so yeah, the, our therapists are there to, to support you in that endeavor. Okay. So, I mean, this sounds like very useful to, to companies that are, you know, trying to look after their best asset which is their staff, let's face it, without the staff, Absolutely. you know, there is no company most of the time. If people Absolutely. are listening, yes. if, you know, if, if people are listening to this, be it company owners, bosses, or actually members of staff who are thinking, actually, I need some help, but I don't want to talk to my boss. Um, where can they get a bit more in info, some help, some pointers? You know. Yeah, as I said, the best the best thing is perhaps to, to visit our website and, and perhaps you know talk talk to one of our, the members of our team who can give you a, a demo. So the, the website is 
thrive.uk.com. And as part of this campaign, we also have igethelp.co.uk. So if you visit that page and if you're an employer and you're interested in having a conversation about how you can support your workforce, how can you get uh, that absenteeism lower, how can you get that presenteeism lower? And more, most importantly, look after your most important asset, as, as, as you were saying, Mike. Um, yeah, okay. how, you know, how, how can you do that? Just just come and, and give us a visit and, and we'll be delighted to, to support you. And, and the I Get campaign, that's an ongoing thing. You know, that, that's yeah. not just this week only, that will be continuing. That's continuing, yeah. So it's, it's, we just want to sort of get people more open, you know, to open up about these issues and eliminate that difficulty that people have that initial barrier that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, where they're struggling to actually seek help, just to make that as, as positive as possible. But also, if you saw the people, if you see other people around it that are getting help, maybe that gives you more confidence to get help yourself. That's what yeah. we want. And that's why we call it I Get Help. Okay, well, look, good luck with that. It sounds potentially very useful and could help an awful lot of people, and an awful lot of bosses and owners as well. Let's not let's not let's not forget them. Absolutely. So, Andres, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for having me. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with zero zilch zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. I really would like to say just a big thank you to all listeners. I really do appreciate all of you very much. Now, if in turn you've appreciated uh, one of the guests or more than one of the guests on the Relax Back UK show, there's a chance to vote for them on the UK Health Radio Awards. Um, go to the UK Health Radio homepage, that's ukhealthradio.com, click on the awards button and that will load up the voting pages. There are lots of categories there, you can, go, you can scroll through them and vote for your favourite. One of the cat categories is presenter, so you can vote for me uh, if you so wish. Um, on, please do. All right, now, my next guest is Rebecca Cannon. She's Principal Scientist of Human Factors at IOM. That's the Institute of Occupational Medicine. And I asked her if her role is essentially one of a psychologist. I am indeed. I'm a health psychologist in qualification. Okay, so that means you think about why people do what they do and how that might affect their health. Is that, is that, is, have I got that right? More or less? Absolutely. In, in a nutshell, that's fantastic. I think you're the first person that guessed that right. Yes. Okay. Well, I, 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 I should be very proud of myself then. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a tick from you. So thank you. Um, now, the, the Institute of Occupational Medicine has been doing some um, research 
which is very relevant to all our lives, really, as we sort of come out of, of, of COVID. And it's looking at some of our shopping habits and, uh, you know, what we get up to when we're shopping. But this isn't just shopping uh, like in all sorts of shops. It's, it's quite a specific range of shops. So, Rebecca, can you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what you did and the areas you, you kind of researched? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the Institute of Occupational Medicine um, was awarded some funding as part of the um, Protect National Course Study, so funded by HSE, um, in order to look at transmission risk um, within different sectors. And in particular, the project that we were funded for um, was to have a look at the use of face coverings within retail consulting environments. So effectively, when you're in a, a retail premises or a shop, and you're taken away from the busy shop floor in order to have a more personal consultation, generally in close proximity with the worker providing that service, um, and often in quite a small space. Um, so, for example, within pharmacy, having your eyes checked by an optician, um, hair and beauty therapy treatments and, and things along those lines. So, so that was the scope of our study, really, to look at people's use of face coverings um, and the factors that affect that behaviour. In, in that quite specific retail context. Okay, and is this specifically aimed at COVID? Because I guess it's relevant for all sorts of communicable diseases. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the findings are definitely relevant um, and, and transferable. There's lessons to be learned and, and insight to be gained more widely than, than the COVID-19 virus. But um, the funding itself was, was emergent as a result of uh, the pandemic. So the focus of the study was in the context of COVID-19 and, and obviously, from a consumer perspective, the introduction of people being needing to uh, to wear face coverings has only more recently in, in recent years as a result of the pandemic come in. Um, so that it was very much bound in terms of the focus of the study to, to look at transmission of COVID specifically, although our participants gave us insight in more widely in terms of other benefits or, or challenges. Right, okay, so, but presumably in, in these situations, you know, uh, I think you, you, you go to get your hair cut or, or something. You know, it, it never was mandatory for staff to wear masks or yeah. um, or for customers to, to wear masks. Um, but did did any uh, did any businesses kind of suggest ever before all this to their staff that well, you know, you can wear a mask if you want, or you know, or was it was it on the horizon at all? Yeah, I mean, when you look at settings such as sort of community pharmacy and the more sort of health related, then obviously to an extent, depending on the service being provided, then there potentially was that that behaviour already there um, to a certain extent, although not necessarily as consistent and, and, and frequent um, with regards to the, the variety of services that may well have been provided. But yeah, you're quite right in terms of consumers and, and other settings such as hair and beauty um, or having a bra fitting, for example, you know, I don't think people would necessarily have thought about needing to wear a face covering before the pandemic. Um, and certainly it's, it's fresh in people's minds now in terms of maybe how close they're going to be to somebody else. And, and equally, as I say, the size of that space that they're going to be in and the length of time and therefore the potential for particles to transmit between individuals in that space. So I think we're all more mindful of sort of our breathing and, and proximity to others and maybe yeah. how we might mitigate that uh, and the risk that that might present in different settings. Um, and so obviously have, now... Sorry, I interrupted, but ha ha have, you, have you found that businesses 
will now after well not after covid because covid is still going on um but whether now businesses give their staff any, any guidance or or even any instructions you know that so you know you have to do this this is company yes. policy yeah yeah so we have and and one of the interesting things about the study actually um, or the interesting findings that came out of the study was the differences between the different settings and professional groups. So we found generally on balance that members of the public had quite similar responses to those provided by hair and beauty therapists, whereas we found pharmacists tended to provide quite similar responses to other sort of health-related retailers, so opticians, etc. And what we found was, particularly in hair and beauty, they continued to mandate the use of face coverings amongst their workers but not their customer base um, and the rationale for that in, in quite a few cases was um, to provide their customers with confidence that we're taking your health and well-being seriously and, and almost a fear that they might lose business if the staff inside those premises weren't seen to be wearing face coverings so they've in, in a lot of cases taken the decision to continue mandating the use of face coverings amongst their staff as an individual business, rather than necessarily needing that to be legislated from higher up from the government. Whereas certainly um, pharmacies, because they are a healthcare setting, technically they're under subtly different guidance and requirements to wider retail settings. So within a community pharmacy, um, it's still mandatory for both workers and members of the public in order to don a face covering when receiving services. So it, it is different, I think, in terms of the different retail premises that you visit. And, and certainly people are mindful of both the health requirements, but also the other benefits or barriers that come alongside that as part of running a business. Sure. What impact behaviour? Right, well, following on from that, there's a question which uh, it's probably a bit of an unfair question and impossible to answer. But I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Have a go. Do, do, do you have any data or, or any thoughts on whether... Um, I don't know, nail bars that insist that their staff wear masks get more, you know, do, do their customers prefer that? You know, do they get more custom because of that? Or conversely, does it put people off? Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting question. Uh, being absolute relative to the data, I would say, no, we can't confidently say that because the sample that we had was, I think, broadly, um, 400 odd something along those lines so we can't make generalizations to everyone and obviously our sample also included um, a diverse representation of different premises but certainly the feedback that we got from the retailers were that the customers preferred it certainly in in terms of health and uh, in terms of hair and beauty um, settings and, and that there was a feeling that that was appreciated and that they may well lose customers if not um, but generally I think people sort of tended to feel more comfortable. So the people that we spoke to in interview, in addition to the survey, um, were sort of describing to us increased feelings of confidence and, and generally reduced feelings of anxiety when those around them are wearing face coverings. But in terms of intention to visit those premises, if it's no longer mandated by either government or um, the retailer themselves, that was one of the questions that we asked on our survey. And generally, people said it wouldn't make a difference. Um, there were a few exceptions to that rule, but generally people sort of said they would still continue to visit, but actually they might choose to adapt their own behaviour. So they might choose to visit a different location, potentially, if it was less crowded, for example, if there were no longer masks and, and face coverings being worn. Or, or equally, it might increase their personal likelihood that they would choose to don a face covering, even though other people around them weren't. So 
it didn't seem to, the, the findings that we did gather from the, the research seem to suggest that it won't necessarily impact people's willingness to visit, but it will impact their own personal behaviours in terms of when and how frequently and where. Right. Okay. And uh, another unfair, possibly uh, impossible question. Um, if customers are asked to wear a face mask, I mean, I, I don't know if, 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 if this is even very common now, but say if you go to a nail bar and uh, the, the shop says, please, to come in this establishment, would you mind wearing a mask? Um, any data on that sort of behaviour? Does that make people go away or...? I don't know. I mean, we did a literature review at the very beginning of the research in order to inform the coverage of the survey and the interviews. Um, and that was on international research that had already been conducted. And there were certainly findings in there in terms of some altercations that had occurred within retail premises where, you know, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the customer or the individual is wearing one and wearing one correctly is the other issue. Um, so there's definitely some evidence in the literature at the time we did our review that suggests it can lead to conflict it can lead to sort of a bit of a uh, an argument uh, and verbal heated discussion shall we say mm. so i think it's it's generally one of those things and and certainly just purely anecdotally from my perspective following the media that seems to be something throughout the pandemic in terms of well who's going to enforce these rules if something is a regulation you've got to back it up with some teeth somewhere so it's definitely a challenge and and certainly now the government has moved away from that and, and left it to our informed by now um, choice and, and personal risk assessment of what we do and how we behave in different settings. Sure. Um, Something that I probably should have asked you at the start is how you gathered this information. You mentioned that you, you had 400 data points one, or you interviewed 400 establishments or ex exactly how did you carry out the research? No, that's okay. So the, the project started initially with a, uh, an evidence review in terms of existing academic and grey literature um, to understand the work that had gone before and whether we could glean anything from that to take a step forward and really focus in on, on what we were exploring with our data collection. Um, so that fed into the, the design um, of an online survey that people could access through Facebook. We reached out to various professional intermediaries, so professional bodies and groups, the Federation uh, federations and associations and things along those lines um, to then push out and, and raise awareness of the study happening um, as well as advertisement through the Protect National Core Study website as well. Um, we also then use paid advertisement on Facebook to try and target the different groups that we were reaching out to as well. So we basically tried to make as much noise as possible at the beginning um, to get people aware of the study so that they could choose to participate if they wanted to. Um, we then had our online survey ran for around about a month, I think, um, in terms of time. And simultaneously, we were interviewing people as well who either opted in from the survey to discuss their responses in a little bit more detail in terms of why they provided the answers that they had or directly into interview. Um, so people that um, conducted an interview without having completed the survey. Um, and we did, I think there was 18 workers interviewed in total and 18 members of the public um, across the UK, so England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and from different professional groups that fitted within the scope of obviously having delivered services within a retail consulting room, um, or members of the public who reported that they had visited those premises within a defined period of time before our research. Um, so that was sort of the scope in terms of who was included and then how we gathered that data. So ultimately the findings that we've, we've um, now pr produced our report and submitted back to HSE, 
and we'll soon be sharing um, infographics and video bites along with the final publication on our website and, and the National Core Study um, website as well. Um, so if people want to find the, the inner details of what we found and how the work was conducted, feel free, go and have a nose because it will appear there soon. Um, but uh, yeah, effectively, um, you know, that was the scope in terms of who we spoke to okay. and where so it's pretty, it, it, it was pretty comprehensive, you know. I, I would say it's pretty comprehensive. All right. Just m m moving on. So, you know, that's the the, the study um, uh, works and, and stands up and is soon, soon to be published. I mean, things have moved on a little bit since the, you know, lockdown and all that. But, you know, COVID is definitely still with us. You know, it's, sometimes it's easy to, to forget that, until, you know, until you get mm -hmm. it. Um, or someone you know uh, gets it. In fact, my, you know, we've all had it in my family. You know, most recently, you know, just a few weeks ago. So it's still oh, around. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Again, a very difficult question. Kind of statistically, if you have a shop on the high street and someone comes in, or you have a member of staff there, you know, what are the chances are currently that they they've got COVID? Does anyone know? <laughs> again a very difficult question the chance yeah, of so stopping someone at random on the high street and they've got covid is that yeah, high yeah that that is a very difficult question to answer and there's i think there's so many complexities to the transmission of the virus um that are easy to forget i mean you know you've got across the uk only if we're looking at uk um you know you've got four devolved nations all of whom have managed covid differently with different regulations requirements at different points of time um, and you've also got different established practices beforehand as we mentioned before depending on where you work and your previous history so there were a couple of our interview participants for example who mentioned that they lived in another country previously where the use of face coverings was commonplace um, so there's all different factors I think and and some of our participants also highlighted when we asked them about their vulnerability to to the COVID-19 virus and they sort of identified well actually face coverings provide one of many mitigating measures that you can take. So there's obviously sanitizing your hands and surfaces. There's, you know, trying to keep space where possible, which obviously in a consulting room is quite difficult when someone's up close looking at your eyes or, or trying to medically assess you in a pharmacy. But, um, you know, there's so many different factors that, that influence the likelihood and the risk of transmission, as well as whether someone's symptomatic or not, along with there's different rates. So colleagues across the, the uh, Protect um, Research umbrella are also looking at sort of transmission in hamsters or, you know, getting people to cough in, in broadly, the description would be cough boxes, but cough and see how, how far a distance those particles travel um, and over what point since you've tested positive. So there's all different studies um, under the different Protect um, National Core Study umbrella that are looking at COVID transmission in different ways. So it makes the question that you ask very difficult to answer in different settings with different people of different ages. <laughs> yeah, well, it's impossible, actually, isn't it? Really, <laughs> broadly. Um, maybe the thing to do is is take away some positives in the fact that most people's behaviour has changed. Because I know, okay, just personally, so this is anecdotally, I wash my hands more often now. Um, and, and I got into that habit when, you know, we were washing them every time we went out, every time we came back and, yeah. and really washing them properly as well with soap. Mm -hmm. Now, I might not be 
be doing it quite as much as that as I was, but I, I'm still washing my hands more. And this this is probably a positive thing because I'm probably not alone. I imagine more people do that. Um, yeah. And I, I do find myself, if I'm chatting to people on the street, you know, whether they're a neighbour or, or what have you, um, I tend to leave a little bit more space between us. Mm. Um, you can, you know, whether, whether that's a good thing or not, because <laughs> there's yeah, other issues involved socially really, maybe that's not so good but you know but you make a really interesting point because it, it is that shift in people's habits and I think at the beginning of the pandemic you know it it came so quickly and it was alien to us certainly in the UK without having previously worn face coverings generally when in public so it was all new and it was a bit of a culture shock to the system whereas I think now particularly over time and, and our um, participants sort of shared this view as well in that it's something that's now become, as you mentioned, it's sort of a new ingrained habit, the wearing of face coverings. People are used to putting them on when they leave their house or when they get out their car or when they enter the premises. So we didn't have very many people at all that said to us it's only when they enter the consulting space within that shop. It was, it was already on and being worn for a length of time before they entered the retail consulting room. So people's habits generally, I think, have changed. And some of the benefits as well that workers in particular shared with us were that they were experiencing far less sort of other respiratory illnesses and seasonal flu because the wearing of face coverings by their customers and staff seems to have made a massive difference. So that would suggest to me that they're doing something positive. And, and equally, I think, you know, even anecdotally, that's part of, you know, helping to motivate people um, in continuing that behaviour because they're seeing that there's a difference actually when they've worked in the same job for years previously prior to the pandemic and now through wearing face coverings for a few years they're seeing a visible difference in their own health you know that that it's things along those lines that are reinforcing those habits and I think make it more likely that in some cases the behaviour will be endured over time and, and people will continue to do it. Yeah because certainly uh, before Covid if, if you saw um, people I don't know, say on the streets of London, uh, and they might be uh, tourists, possibly wearing masks. You kind of look twice and think, you know, what's going on there? That's a bit different. But now yeah. it's just it's just regular. So yeah, um, yeah maybe, that's, maybe that's, a, that's a positive thing that's uh, come out yeah. of all all this. Although, uh, and actually, some businesses where the staff wore masks. Um, I, I, I'm thinking of nail bars. And they they would wear masks because actually the the smell of some of the dust is pretty. There's the nail dust as well with the filing and things. Yeah. Okay. All right. I've never actually been into one of these, but I've I've seen <laughs> I've, I've walked past. I'd love to say I do that. more often, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it was always a surprise to me when I saw people working in these places and they did have uh, masks on, and now it, it's just normal. So you know, this is this is this is a good thing. But that's actually what? another thing that we found affects people's behaviour in terms of it being normal. So we had a few people that had mentioned that they had followed the news from other countries who were ahead of us in the pandemic. And therefore, they'd started wearing face coverings before they were encouraged by our government. Um, and they were sort of saying that actually, in some cases, they, they did feel sort of social exclusion or stigma or, or, you know, they received negative comment from other people that they didn't know as a result, whereas... A lot of people sort of said generally it is more, as you mentioned, socially acceptable. And that does have a massive impact on people's behaviour and their willingness to continue doing something if it suddenly becomes abnormal. So I think it will be interesting over time to see 
where and, and how quickly that normality changes and, and in, to what extent does it endure over time in particular settings? Sure. So presumably the objective of your research, I, I, I guess, is, uh, is twofold. It, it's to help people that have businesses or are starting businesses that involve you know, this kind of thing, you know, whether it be cutting hair or nails or, or, or whatever it may be, and also uh, potentially to inform the lawmakers of, of the land. So um, when, when, the, um, when the research is published, uh, are both these things going to happen, do you think? Well, hopefully. I mean, as I say, we are one of a number of studies that were funded by the Protect National Core Study in terms of sector specific research in order to understand, you know, what's happening, what's the impact, how easy or difficult has it been for people to, you know, manage or try and mitigate against the, the viral transmission. Um, so, you know, another piece of work that I'm now involved in going forward is to draw together um, cross-sector work to understand the extent to which the findings that we've gathered so far are discrete or similar across those different sectors. So there's work being conducted, for example, in public transport. Um, there's work being conducted within construction, within care homes, within food processing um, that I was a part of as well with colleagues at IOM. Um, so it, there is a piece of work now happening to try and draw all of that together and say, actually, to what extent are the risk factors for transmission, the same or different, and to what extent can the recommendations, the policies and the practice be consistent or where is there a need for there to be discrete guidance that's specifically mindful of the setting or the practices that are happening um, and the work that's being conducted. So there's other pieces of work, I would say, that are continuing onwards beyond this particular project that hopefully will help to sort of leave that legacy from the Protect National Core Study that not only helps us now in terms of managing where we are as the government have moved towards that sort of living with COVID, if you like, approach to life, um, but also should new variants of the virus arise that become more problematic again, or should we find ourselves in a similar situation as we did, you know, around about two years ago when this landed in the first place, because there will be other pandemics or, you know, um, situations that affect, affect multiple countries and impact our behaviours. And, and so I think it's important that we really learn as much as we possibly can from the research that's happened so that we can put our best foot forward in a timely way in the future. So with, with that in mind, if, if people want to access the work that you've done so far, uh, is it all publicly available? It is. How, how can they see it? My computer's just told me it needs to reboot, so I'm trying desperately to find my mouse so that I can hit no. <laughs> One sec, Mike. Sorry. Where's my mouse gone? Oh, do you know what? I'm going to go in this way. Sorry, I don't want it to cut you off midway through. There we go. Marvellous. <laughs> Sorry. Try again. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, with that in mind, if people are listening to this and would like to see the report on the research that's done so far, um, I'm assuming it's, assuming it's publicly available. It is or it will be. So the, the um, Protect National Core Studies, um, there's a page if you, if you literally Google Protect in capital letters, NCS, um, there is a website that has been driven by um, the HSE with support from the Thomas Ashton Institute in terms of making sure that the research that's delivered in the public interest is accessible to the public um, and workers and industry. Um, right. so and your report will be there. 
It will be. It's not yet because it was only submitted to the client at the end of last month. So it's currently under review, but we are hopeful that it will be listed very soon. But on the IOM website, we are this week planning to upload some high level bites in terms of what's come out. So we've got infographics for the different worker groups, for the members of the public and with regards to the policy, practice and research recommendations okay. that have come out of our study that will be loaded up on the IOM's website. So if you search and what's for the address of that? face coverings, if you search for face coverings and IOM world, um, then you should be able to find that there on our page. Brilliant. All right. So th- this is this is very interesting. Thank you for chatting, Rebecca. I know this just this this topic will go on and on because you know COVID is is with us now and it it won't be going anywhere uh, for a while if ever. So um I think this is important for all of us. So thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. Andres Fonseca, CEO of Thrive, the mental health app, and Rebecca Cannon, Principal Scientist of Human Factors at IOM. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was the Relax Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.